Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the History Jar podcast. This time we have reached the L of no plan like yours to study history wisely. We're still with the Plantagenets, but these are the Lancastrian monarchs. There are three royal Lancaster kings, all called Henry, 4th, 5th and 6th. In order to get to grips with the Henrys, we're going to need to have a look at their family tree, going back to Edward III. You see, he had five sons who survived to adulthood. In the past, these sons, who he made dukes, were regarded as the reason for the Wars of the Roses, but modern historians have revised their opinions. Even so, with so many sons growing to adulthood and having children of their own, there were an awful lot of Plantagenet cousins. The first son, Edward of Woodstock, is better known in history as the Black Prince. He predeceased his father, which meant that Edward's son Richard inherited the crown when Edward III died, and he became Richard II. He was just ten years old. The second son was called Lionel of Antwerp. Lionel married Elizabeth, Countess of Ulster, and they had a daughter called Philippa. Elizabeth died and Lionel was remarried to Violante of Milan in Italy. He actually got married in Italy. There's a strong suspicion that his new in-laws weren't terribly keen on him, because he died quite soon after the wedding, possibly of poison. The House of York would one day claim the crown through its descent from Lionel's daughter, Philippa. But this week... You can more or less put her out of your minds, but we will be coming back to Lionel of Antwerp, Philippa and her marriage into the Mortimer family. The fourth son, yes, I know I've missed number three out, was Edmund of Langley. He became the Duke of York, so we'll definitely be coming back to him in the next episode. The fifth son was Thomas of Woodstock, who became Duke of Gloucester. He was murdered in September 1397 in Calais with a mattress, probably on the orders of his nephew Richard II, who wanted to avoid a state trial. So, back to the third son, John of Gaunt. He became the Earl of Lancaster by right of his marriage to Blanche of Lancaster, who was descended from Edward I's little brother, Edmund Crouchback. Edmund Crouchback had been a crusader, hence the nickname. So doubly royal if you're thinking of playing a game of royal family top trumps. In 1362, John was made the Duke of Lancaster. John and Blanche's son, Henry of Bolingbroke, would go on to become Henry IV. And just so things are neat and tidy, John married for a second time after Blanche's death to Constanza of Castile, who does not need to worry us in our exploration of kings and queens of England. And after her death, John married for the third time to his long-term mistress, Catherine Swinford. Their children, the Beauforts, will reappear in the episode about the Tudors. For today, we just need to worry about Henry of Bolingbroke, who was born in Bolingbroke Castle in Lincolnshire. Nothing happens in a vacuum, so we need to set the scene. Richard II inherited the throne in 1377. By 1383, he declared he was ready to rule for himself. In 1386, his uncle, John of Gaunt, set off to Spain to try and win the crown of Castile, which he had inherited by right of his second wife, Constanza. By that time, Richard had overseen an assortment of semi-military disasters and was spending quite a lot of money. So far as his extended family were concerned, 
he was listening to the wrong advisors rather than his proper councillors, i.e. them. When Parliament was summoned in 1386, three men took the opportunity to curb the king's power by accusing him of abusing the law and getting rid of his favourites. These men were Richard's uncle, Thomas of Woodstock, which explains the mattress, Richard, Earl of Arundel, and also the Earl of Warwick. Later, they were joined by Thomas Mowbray, Earl of Nottingham, and Henry of Bolingbroke, Earl of Derby, the son of John of Gaunt. Initially, Richard II had to abide by the wishes of the Lord's Appellant, but by 1397 he had rebuilt his power and he took his vengeance on the first three of the Lords, leaving only Thomas Mowbray and Henry of Bolingbroke. Mowbray became concerned that Richard was simply biding his time and he spoke to Henry about it. Henry talked to his father and the pair of them decided that they had better tell Richard because they weren't totally convinced that Mowbray wasn't trying to implicate Henry in some sort of plot which would have seen him executed. They felt their best option was to tell the king. Mowbray announced that he'd never said anything anti the king and Richard decided that the pair of them should face a trial by combat to decide who was telling the truth. The combat was due to happen on the 16th of September 1398 near Coventry. Everyone was there. But at the last minute Richard halted the event. He banished Mowbray for life and banned Henry from coming on to English shores for the next ten years. Five months later John died and Richard confiscated the Duchy of Lancaster and he turned Henry's banishment into a life sentence. Richard felt so confident that he sailed for Ireland in May 1399. After all, what was Henry going to do? He was sitting in France twiddling his fingers. However, on the 4th of July, Henry landed at Ravenspur in Yorkshire with about 300 men. He said he only wanted to claim his father's duchy. He might have been guilty as the Earl of Derby, but as the Duke of Lancaster, he was perfectly innocent. At that point, Edmund of York was in charge of the country. There didn't seem to be any cause for alarm, and Henry swore to the the Earl of Northumberland that he did not want to usurp his cousin. But after that, events moved swiftly. Northumberland changed sides. By the 20th of August, Henry was in London, and Richard was his captive. On the 30th of September, Henry was acclaimed King of England, and Richard was on his way to Pontefract Castle. Richard's seven-year-old heir presumptive, Edmund Mortimer, was bypassed and soon found himself and his brother in Windsor, ostensibly being educated, but in reality having a very close Lancaster eye being kept on them. Although this didn't stop Constance of York escaping with them and heading in the direction of Wales, unfortunately they were recaptured before they reached safety. And if this was a story... That's where I'd probably end, but it's not. And Richard wasn't without his supporters. There were anti-appellants as well as Lord's appellants. Richard had given many men lands and titles. The land had been confiscated from the Lancaster inheritance. Now they had to give them back to their rightful owner. Also, Henry removed some of the titles that Richard had dished out. So three weeks after Henry took charge, they rose up against him. 
the Epiphany Rising of 1400 planned to kill Henry and his sons at Windsor. There wasn't much mercy for the rebels, including Henry's own brother-in-law, Sir John Holland, Duke of Exeter, who also happened to be Richard II's half-brother. In the autumn of 1401, there was yet another rebellion, and then in 1403, the Percy family, headed by the Earl of Northumberland, who, if you remember, had turned blind eye to the arrival of Henry Bolingbroke at Ravenspur, rebelled against Henry IV's rule. They'd done rather well from turning a blind eye, but Henry IV had money problems. He failed to pay the Percys what he owed for their defence of the borders between England and Scotland. He favoured his own son, Henry of Monmouth, in terms of military leadership in Wales, particularly in the rebellion with Owen Glendower, and even worse, he confiscated Percy prisoners after their victory at the Battle of Homelden Hill in 1402. Ransom of prisoners was a way of gaining wealth, and now Henry had denied them that possibility. There was also the small matter that Edmund Mortimer had been captured by Owen Glendower and put up for ransom. Henry IV had declined to pay it. Edmund was Harry Hotspur's brother-in-law. His wife was Elizabeth Mortimer. So the Earl of Northumberland and his son joined with Owen Glendower in rebellion. Hotspur marched on Shrewsbury, but the town shut its gates against him. His army met with Henry IV's just outside the town on the 24th of July 1403. Hotspur died and Henry's own son, Henry of Monmouth, was injured by... Henry of Monmouth was lucky to survive the injury. It had struck him in the cheekbone. Um, Henry IV's physician created a device to carefully remove the bolt from the bone. He used honey as a disinfectant and also alcohol. However, the scars that Henry sustained are the reason why we're familiar with Henry V's portrait in profile, because his face was ruined on one side by his scars. In 1405, Henry IV had Richard Lust Group, Archbishop of York, executed for his part in yet another rebellion. That same year, Henry began to suffer from a mysterious skin complaint that people thought might have been leprosy, and they also thought that it might have been a punishment for God for executing his bishops. But it's more likely to have been psoriasis. Henry's levels of stress were probably not helped by the fact that as he became more ill, possibly with epilepsy, as well as his skin complaint, Henry of Monmouth became more powerful, and until in the end there was a battle in the council about who would hold the balance of power. Henry IV died in the Jerusalem chamber of Westminster Abbey on the 20th of March 1413. According to Hollandshed, Henry IV had believed a prophecy that he would die whilst he was on crusade. By some irony, the furthest he got from England was the Jerusalem chamber. Henry was the first king of England who allowed heretics to be burnt. Do you remember the Lollards, the ones who lolled or mumbled as they read their Bible in English? Well, they had become a danger who had to be suppressed. Henry IV was now succeeded by his son, Henry of Monmouth. Henry of Monmouth had been with Richard II as his hostage and had gone to Ireland with him when his father had been planning to come to England. He now became Henry V 
and renew the Hundred Years' War. He went to France with 8,000 men. He left Southampton on the 11th of August, 1415. Before he left, he had to deal with the Southampton plotters, or the Cambridge plotters, depending on which history book you read. It's called the Cambridge plot because their numbers included Richard, Earl of Cambridge. These men had wanted to put the Earl of March, descended from Philippa of Clarence, the daughter of Lionel of Antwerp, on the throne. The Earl of March, if you remember, had been Richard II's heir before Henry IV had usurped his cousin. Mortimer, now all grown up, it should be noted, had nothing to do with the plot because he knew what was good for him, unlike Richard, Earl of Cambridge. (coughs) Henry now won the Battle of Agincourt. Henry's army was outnumbered, the weather was terrible, and he had to give orders to slaughter all those French prisoners who would have raised a very rich ransom. However, his decision took the English as close to conquering France as they would ever come. It probably didn't help that the French king, Charles VI, occasionally thought that he was made from glass and that if anyone touched him, that he would shatter. The Treaty of Troyes, signed in 1420, recognised King Henry V of England as the regent and the heir to the French throne. He married Charles's daughter, Catherine of Valois, to seal the treaty. The problem was that Henry had to go back to war to secure what the treaty had promised him. He died on the 31st of August, 1422, probably from dysentery, leaving a nine-month baby, Henry of Windsor, to succeed him. Henry V, recognising that he was dying, named his brother, John of Lancaster, Duke of Bedford, to be the regent of France. His story takes us to Joan of Arc. Henry's other brother, Humphrey of Gloucester, was charged with looking after the young king. The other key player in the regency story was Henry V's own uncle, Cardinal Beaufort, one of the sons of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford. Humphrey of Gloucester, or Good Duke Humphrey, eventually fell from power when his wife was accused of being a witch. Henry VI's mother, Henry V's wife, Catherine of Valois, was only 20 at the time her husband died. Forbidden a role in her son's upbringing and seen as a potential focus for political power, she eventually married for a second time to Owen Tudor, who had been sent to Henry IV's court aged seven as a page. Catherine had previously been linked romantically to John of Gaunt's grandson, Edmund Beaufort, but when a law was passed stating that any man marrying Catherine would need her son's legal permission which was some time hence, because he'd have to be grown up, or forfeit all his lands. Well, Edmund seems to have gone off the idea quite suddenly. Catherine married Owen soon afterwards, giving rise to speculation whether her first son by Owen was actually Owen's at all. Henry VI would be very generous to two of his half-siblings, Edmund and Jasper Tudor, but more of them in due course. Henry VI became King of England at only nine months of age. He ruled for 40-odd years. He is also the only King of England to also be crowned King of France. Unfortunately, the gains that Henry V won were lost, and in 1445, Henry married the penniless Margaret of Anjou 
which did not go down with, well with his lords. Specifically, she was French, had no money, and Henry handed the county of Maine back to the French. Various members of Henry's extended family vied with one another for power throughout the Regency period and throughout his personal rule. The realm became increasingly divided. We're obviously heading into the Wars of the Roses and we're not going to stray there today. Henry VI was a pious man but could not control his extended family. The chickens which Henry IV had let out when he usurped his cousin Richard II were coming home to roost. By 1450, people were muttering about evil advisers, especially the Duke of Suffolk. He was dispatched, but Henry soon acquired more advisers. And whilst we're on the subject of the Duke of Suffolk, he was exiled from England, but his ship was captured and, well, you've guessed it. Apparently, a rusty sword was involved. His body, along with its severed head, was found on the beach in Dover. In 1453, Henry VI deteriorated into catatonic silence, giving his cousin, Richard of York, the son of Richard of Cambridge, the one executed for his part in the Southampton plot, a chance to rule the country. But when Henry regained his faculties... Not only did he have a son called Edward, but Richard was out in the cold once again. Prior to 1453, Henry had shown no signs of mental health problems. It's usually thought that the disaster at Castillon, which ended English rule, triggered his breakdown. At the First Battle of St Albans in 1455, Henry's favourites were killed by the Earl of Warwick and Richard of York. The king was taken into custody um, and we're not going to navigate the Wars of the Roses. Suffice it to say that the Cousins' War was protracted and bloody. (laughs) To cut quite a long story short, on the 30th of December 1460, Richard of York gave battle in vain and was killed at the Battle of Wakefield. By Easter 1461, his son Edward had come back with an army, and at the Battle of Towton, the Lancastrians were defeated. By 1464, Henry had been forced into hiding. He was eventually captured the following year. After months of wandering around the northwest, you can visit many castles and places where Henry VI is said to have been. He was confined almost immediately to the Cat Tower. There was a brief period from 1470 to 1471 called the Readaption when Henry sat on the throne once more. But following the Battle of Barnet, which was won by Edward IV, he was kept in custody until his own son Edward was killed at the Battle of Tewkesbury on the 4th of May. At that point, there was no value in keeping a second king alive in England. He'd only been a pawn that had prevented Margaret of Anjou and Edward from claiming the throne, and now that threat had been removed. At some point on the night of the 21st of May, the very same night when Edward IV arrived back in London, Henry was murdered whilst at prayer in the Tower of London. 
His body was eventually moved to Windsor so that a cult should not grow around it. The York monarchs wanted to rule in peace and quiet, and that, of course, might have been it, had Edward IV not died unexpectedly. And we returned once again to the House of Lancaster in the form of the House of Tudor. But I'm jumping ahead of myself. That's a couple of episodes away. Also, has anyone noted my glaring error? I mentioned that in 1400, Henry IV became King of England, rather than just plain old Henry Bolingbroke, Earl of Derby. And I said three weeks after he took power, there was a plot against him that took the form of the Epiphany Uprising. What I actually should have said is three months, not three weeks. So that's three months after he gained power. I'm going to blame lockdown because I'm losing track of time. At the moment, I'm not sure whether it's Saturday or Sunday, or indeed any other day of the week. And I'm fairly sure that quite a lot of you are in a similar predicament. So all I can say is that it's probably time to have a look at some books. Um, There aren't really that many books about the three Henrys other than Wars of the Roses ones. Um, I'd definitely recommend Edith Pargeter's Bloody Field by Shrewsbury. Um, I haven't read Venora Bennett's Blood Royal. Um, And then, of course, Anne O'Brien tells the story of Edward III's descendants from a female point of view. I've really enjoyed Tapestry of Treason, which is the story of Constance of York, Lady Dispenser. It's a real page-turner. We're also entering into the realms of Philippa Gregory, who is extremely good at using the gossip of the time in order to weave her stories. So just as long as you remember that she's using the gossip of the time, then you're onto a winner. And of course, if you're wanting to know about the Percy family, the Earls of Northumberland, then Carol Winsby Scott's trilogy, beginning with The Lion of Anik, are really good reads. Um, the first novel was published in 1980, and I'm not entirely sure that they're in print at the moment. If you're looking for something more recent, then Con Igledon's series about the Wars of the Roses, beginning with Stormbird, is a good read. Um, The first book, Stormbird, begins in 1437, so you get a good run into the actual Wars of the Roses and meet some of the characters that I've been talking about in this podcast. In terms of history books rather than historical fiction, then we're still with the Plantagenets and Dan Jones. And of course, there are plenty of books about the Wars of the Roses. I probably will do another podcast about the Wars of the Roses at some point, and I will cover the history books in due course. I do hope that some of you have been enjoying a house through time on bbc2 um, about 10 guinea street this time in bristol if you've not been watching it i would recommend it to catch up with it on iplayer and i think that's about it for now stay well stay safe and i hope that you've still got plenty of reading i look forward to you joining me next time when we move through to the house of york bye